Second Peter chapter two and Genesis 19. So Peter has gone from reminding the flock in chapter one to warning the flock. Let me get you up to speed what we talked about on Sunday real quick. Peter says, look, false teachers, first of all, they want your dependence. They want you to think. They want they'll say to you, you know, without maybe saying it is this, you can't possibly understand the deep things of God without my help. That's the way false teachers want your dependence. But Peter's uh, response to that you find in chapter one, verse 20. He says, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. So no pastor, teacher, any of those things um, have a lock on the Scriptures and can say, nobody else gets this. You need to follow me. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter's point is, you have both the author and the interpreter in you. If you are a Christian, if someone tells you, you can't understand this book without me, you say to them, unless you're the Holy Spirit, get out of my face. (laughs) Something like that. Okay. They want your dependence, number one, but number two, their ways are deceptive. Look at chapter two, verse one. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And there's other words like that throughout this text. False, false, secret, deceptive, all of those things. Their ways are deceptive. They're never going to come out and tell you that they are a wolf in sheep's clothing. Then he says... They're, they're, they want your dependence, their ways are deceptive, and their words and their walk are destructive. It says at the end of that verse, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies when even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. So, The reason that Peter is so passionate and actually we're going to see willing to spend a whole chapter taking these guys on, taking them to task, is because he knows the carnage that they will leave in their wake, right? Um, False teachers always leave destroyed lives, destroyed marriages, whatever it might be. And then his last point on Sunday regarding false teachers was not only uh, do they want your dependence, are their ways deceptive and their way and their walk are destructive, but lastly, their end is destruction. Says that at the end of verse three. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. And that's where we left off. Peter says right here, look, these guys wrongly assume these false teachers, that God is asleep at the gavel. They wrongly assume that God just apparently isn't paying attention to what, the, what things they're doing. Their, their attitude is, look, we've gotten away with it so far and we're fine right now. So apparently God is either fine with it or he's not paying attention. Peter's point tonight, loud and clear, Matter of fact, it's the title for tonight's message. God is not asleep. He has promised destruction to the disobedient and deliverance to the righteous. 
He's promised these things. And in one sense, God is very much like the old Domino's pizza. He delivers. He delivers on his promises. Matter of fact, look down at verse 9. If you're looking for a summary statement, this, this is where Peter's going. This is his conclusion. It sums it up well. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations or trials and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God is both good at delivering people out of judgment and delivering them into judgment. The Lord is not asleep regarding these false teachers, Peter would say. He knows both how to deliver and to destroy. And Peter begins with three examples of the latter. That God knows how to punish the disobedient, that he's not asleep. He's fairly well versed, I think you would agree, in showing that he's not asleep to injustice and unrighteousness. He's going to give us three examples in case you're, you're not convinced. Number one, we're going to see the angels in verse 4. They thought perhaps that God was asleep, but they found out different. Verse 5, we'll see the ancient world. And then in verse 6, we will see the ash heap that was once Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys ready for some fun reading? (laughs) First, the angels. Not the baseball team. The fallen angels. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, there's two possibilities that Peter's referring to uh, that we know of. Could, could be the rebellious angels, the third of them that uh, Lucifer took with him, Isaiah 14. Um, or depending upon your view of Genesis 6, it could be those angels whose perversion produced the, the, the giants that they speak of in the Old Testament. Either way, this and other verses tell us that there are some angels who are right now currently in chains of darkness. And according to Revelation... They will be released for a time before their final destination, the lake of fire. Peter's point, though, to the false teachers who who are busy destroying lives as he's writing this. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, "Okay, false teachers. These were think of it. Angels. Glorious, exalted beings. And now they are in chains of darkness. And Peter would say, and you think God will give you a pass? You you think you're too glorious, you're too important for God to take down, just like he did, the angels. So exhibit A, angels in chains. Next up, exhibit B, the ancient world in cataclysm. Look at verse 5. And he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. The word flood there in the Greek, it's cataclysmos. It's the same place we get the word cataclysm. What's a cataclysm? It's an epic event, an event that's epic in its destruction. I was thinking of this. You remember in December of 2004, just the very last few days of that that year, There was a tsunami in the Indian Ocean that killed, they think, over 200,000 people. And it captured the world's attention. Peter points to a flood that makes that tsunami look like a a thimble with water in it. He says, this judgment wiped out the whole world. 
minus eight people. Verse 5, And he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. The word ungodly there is asabis, and it means without worship, without fear, those who don't fear God in any way. Peter's point to the false teachers, again, is God wiped out, he washed out virtually the whole world back in Genesis. And you think you'll get a pass? Y'all, this is, you know, again, this is pretty heavy stuff here, but this is a reminder to us that God does not grade on a curve. If, if you know unbelievers, I mean, if you are an unbeliever, but, but uh, for, for your sake, I hope you're not. If you, if you know unbelievers who say to you, well, I'm not so bad. I'm better than that guy. So God will let me into heaven or I'm better than most. So I'm sure that I'll be fine. You need to point them to this scripture. God wiped out a whole world of people and left eight. Only eight who were saved, not because they were perfect, but because they were willing. They believed God enough to get on that boat. The the angels in chains remind us it doesn't matter how glorious or exalted or important you think you are. God is the judge. The ancient cataclysm reminds us it doesn't matter how you compare yourself to others or how many other folks are going along the same path. God is judge. Now, before we leave verse five, you know, thankfully, Peter does put in some encouraging things in here. Before we leave verse 5, notice that God knows how to both reserve the ungodly, that is, nearly the whole world, to destruction, but also preserve the righteous. And there were only eight, but he did preserve the righteous by deliverance. Verse 5, and God did not spare the ancient world, but you could say he did save, though, Noah, one of eight people. And then it says, a preacher of righteousness. Preacher, it's a... The Greek word is kerix, and it's where we get the word caruso, which may or may not mean anything to you either, but it's, it's a herald, a messenger vested with public authority who conveyed the official messages of kings, magistrate, princes, military commanders who gave a public summons or demand. This was the same word that they used for John the Baptist, uh, preacher caruso, one who goes and uh, preaches to, to in, in the highways and the byways. So here, interesting, verse 5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We don't have any record of Noah giving a sermon behind uh, the pulpit, the church of the abundant waters. We don't hear him saying, uh, now I'd like to have every head bowed, every eye closed. There's no record of him on a church platform. But don't you suppose that that gargantuan boat he was building was saying something? Don't you think that was his platform? Noah had a pulpit, you could say, the size of a football field. My point, maybe you don't have the gift of gab. Maybe you're not able, at least you don't think so, to to whip up a a three-point sermon. You can still be, according to this text, a preacher of righteousness. 
Matter of fact, let me make it more urgent. Not you can be, you must be. The world is heading for cataclysm. Heading to be completely washed out. Your pulpit, like Noah's, is how you prepare for Jesus' return. Even if you can't craft a speech, if you keep preparing for his return, you keep hammering away, as it were, preparing for that day when, of your deliverance and their destruction, some will notice, will take notice. You will be a preacher of righteousness. Okay, so Peter's point, look, God is not asleep at the gavel. He knows how to deliver the righteous and how to destroy the ungodly. So we've seen angels in chains. We've seen the ancients in cataclysm. A final example of the ability that God has to bring destruction is the ash heap that was once Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6 says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them to destruction. The word destruction there is catastrophe, same place we get catastrophe. Again, the same idea, complete and utter ruin. Turn with me to Genesis 19. just want you to, to see this story. I'm going to read it. It's going to be quite a lengthy reading, but probably most of you know the story, but if you don't, you will by the time we're done here. And... uh Very little comments on my part. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. This is the day that complete and utter ruin came to Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed, bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, and we'll find out why. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then then they said, This one, speaking of Lot, uh, yeah, this one, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break the down, down the door. But the men, that is the angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in this city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. 
When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who, who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the, the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. God knows how to deliver those out of destruction. Now look down at verse 23. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Utter destruction. Everything completely annihilated. An ash heap. Verse 26, But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early, Abraham, Lot's uncle, went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, by the way, making intercession for this town. Then he looked, Abraham looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. Back to our text, Second Peter, chapter two, Peter again. Being very, very uh, clear, I think, with these false teachers. Uh, Hello, you think God's asleep? Look what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. God made it very clear that men lying with men was not only a sin against him, but a sin against nature. And yet, as angels walked into that community, they found a region so filled with sin that homosexual behavior was far from being shameful. It was beyond being accepted. The homosexual community was militantly aggressive and demanding. Hmm. Peter says, I want you to look at that heap of ashes that was once a thriving region of commerce and of opportunity. He turned, verse 6, Peter says, he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example, literally a warning sign to those who afterward would live ungodly. Interesting, the word afterward has, has uh, as a part of it to be on the point of doing something or to intend to, to be just on the edge of doing something. So Peter says, look, that heap of ashes, that pillar of smoke testifies to anyone who intends to live as though God's asleep, as though God didn't really mean what he said. We have angels in chains. And Peter says it doesn't matter how important, exalted you are. We have an ancients, the ancients in cataclysm. Peter says it doesn't matter how many others are living ungodly lives alongside you. We have the ashes of catastrophe. And Peter says it doesn't matter how long wickedness has, has been tolerated or how far society has stooped. Peter's point, again, I don't know if you've gotten it yet, God is not asleep. I don't know if you've heard it said, but I've heard it said that if God doesn't destroy San Francisco, it used to be, 
And now it's changed to say that if God doesn't destroy America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Anyone who's on the edge of thinking and acting as though God doesn't exist or he's asleep, this is your sign. So Peter's message, God delivers on his promise to destroy the ungodly. But also, and again, I'm thankful that there's these, these rays of hope in this, this text, but also God delivers on his promise to deliver his people. And maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, Noah was pretty awesome. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to be as good as Noah. Well, read about Lot. You'll feel a little bit better. <laughs> Verse 7, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Now watch. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Okay, are you like me? Tempted to rub your eyes and go, did I read that right? Lot, a righteous man. Is this the same guy that we just read about in Genesis 19? The same guy that we know chose the area that was near Sodom and Gomorrah because it was, it was for material reasons that he could prosper. That he never considered the impact that where he lived would have upon his family. More interested in growing his wealth than growing up his family. Is this the same Lot who had apparently assimilated enough in their, into their godless culture that he has become a leader in their town sitting at the gate? Is this the same Lot who says to these guys, hey, don't take these men, take my virgin daughters. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Love you too. Surely no one would mistake Lot as righteous. But look at it, verse 7 and 8. You guys read the word righteous for me. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that... Righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Three times in two verses, Lot is called righteous. Now, either God is asleep to Lot's failures or there's hope for us. This is an awesome thing. You notice this not just in Lot's life. You notice it as you go through the Old Testament and you see these guys. And, and the, the Bible is so faithful to show that these guys, they're, they're warts and all. And then you come to the New Testament and it's like they're saints. Right? In the Old Testament, David, adulterer, murderer. In the New Testament, just King David whose throne will never end. In the Old Testament, Abraham, weak in his trust for God, uh, asking his wife to do things that, that she should never have had to do, to do. In the New Testament, father of faith. In the Old Testament, Jacob, the heel grabber, the conniver. In the New Testament, Israel, 
He is governed by God, the the, the one whom they all uh, look up to. And probably most striking of all, this guy, the loser Lot. But the New Testament calls him righteous Lot. Y'all, to me, this is a great reminder of our God's awesome willingness to forget to remember our sins no more. Jeremiah 50, verse 20 says, In those days at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found, for I will forgive the remnant I spare. Micah 7.19, you will again have compassion on us, speaking to the Lord. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. Most of you are aware of this, but you know if you go north far enough, eventually you hit the North Pole, Right? And you start going south. You go east, and you can go east forever. You go west, and you can go west forever. So tell me, how far are our sins removed from us? If we've allowed him, if we've given him our hearts, and he's exchanged his righteous robes for our filthy rags. See, it's amazing that a a guy like Lot, (laughs) the New Testament can call righteous, righteous, righteous. Now, I don't know if, if some of you are um, have lawyers' minds. Shame on you. No. Um, if you think this through, some of, some of us could be tempted to comfort ourselves in this a little too much. Meaning, you can say to yourself, well, Lot was a loser, and God calls him righteous. Maybe it's not all that important that I seek after righteousness. Maybe it's not that big a deal. I mean, after all, when he when I'm part of the remnant, he's going to uh, he's going to wipe away my sin. Well, let me point out a couple things for you. It's true that God has a wonderful willingness to forgive. I could put it this way: the lots in this world will find a lot of forgiveness. But don't forget these little facts: Lot lost every possession he had in that ash heap. Lot lost his sons-in-law. Lot lost his wife. His daughters were so messed up by the lifestyle that they had uh, become known or become accustomed to in Sodom that we find them later committing incest. So effectively, he lost them as well. Y'all see that Lot is the quintessential iron plucked from the fire, but he's got nothing else to show for it. Is that the legacy you want to shoot for? Is that the legacy you're headed for? Yes, the Lord showed him a lot of mercy, but it also cost him a lot. And that's before we get to verse 7 and 8, which is that Peter gives us insight that we, we didn't have before about the torment that was going on in Lot's own head. Verse 7 and 8 gives us an insight into Lot's lot in Sodom. Verse 7. And delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed. The word means to tire down, to exhaust through labor or affliction. 
and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. The word filthy there is unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, lasciviousness, all of that stuff. It's saying that, that Lot was worn out. He, this is before the, the, the angels arrived. He was worn out. He was exhausted by their shamelessness. And it was ongoing because verse 8 says, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And this is interesting. The word seeing there is blema, and it just means a glance. So here we get a picture of what it was like to be in Lot's shoes in that cesspool of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everywhere he glanced, there was lewdness, lasciviousness. And he was exhausted by his constant fight to do what he could to stay unblemished. And we, we know that he did not always win that fight. I mean, where was his head? Well, apparently he'd been, he'd been exhausted trying to, to fight it, but to, to come to the place where you're making some of the decisions that he's making. But he did not always win the fight, but at least he was fighting. Now, let, let me say this out loud. Hopefully you, you can do, do this math, figure this out. That Lot, we don't know why he stayed, but he stayed. Let me just say this out loud because chances are if there's a, a cesspool that you find yourself in, there's a, there's a decent chance that all you got to do is walk out of it. Let, let me put it that way. If there's a relationship or a habit or a place that you frequent that torments your soul, that wears you out when you try to resist it, how about this? You walk away. You get out. You close the door on that thing. You uh, unplug it, whatever it is. Don't go near that thing that tempts your soul to the point of exhaustion when you fail to, uh, when you get too near it. For whatever reason, though, Lot tormented his soul by staying there. But here's another point. At least he was fighting. He was in this cesspool, but he was fighting. It says, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Maybe that's you in this day and age. I think it's all of us, right? Doesn't it seem everywhere we glance, there's temptation, lewdness, excess, lawless deeds. Let me ask you another convicting question. Are you still fighting? Or have you just kind of, yeah, it's the way of the world. It's just going to keep getting worse, and so I'll just kind of coast. Don't let it be said better of Lot than of you. Because <laughs> at least he was fighting. Sound like he really made some stupid decisions about where to stay, but at least he was fighting. Matter of fact, looking back, that really is pretty much the only thing that Lot did right. He still fought to the point of exhaustion against adapting the lifestyle of the culture around him. And that, and when the day of destruction came, and it did come, though it cost him a lot, God rescued him from that destruction. Verse 9, this Peter's summary. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And again, that word could also mean trials. Deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. 
Peter's summary statement. God is not asleep at the gavel. He knows how to deliver his own and he knows how to destroy the ungodly. Now this is, uh, I'll just take a little side side trip here real quick. Um, It's a good place for it. It's not necessarily part of the context, but I think you'll think you'll agree. This happens to be one of the reasons, by the way, that I am, that Calvary chapels are pre-tribulationists. And that is that God has a great record, and Peter points it out here, has a great record that he does not punish the righteous with the wicked. He doesn't punish the righteous with the wicked. Now, again, if... uh, the, the, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. Okay, so there's, there's tribulation that comes from just being in, in this messed up world. But when the great tribulation, which only comes from the hand of God, when that comes, God has this amazing ability to take, even if it's just eight of them or six of them, to take a remnant, to take the ones that are his own and not punish them, though the rest will suffer the, the consequences. God has this great record of not punishing the righteous with the wicked. Noah, Lot, right? Noah in, in the ark was not punished, right, with, with the wicked. Lot, as messed up as he was, was delivered from that destruction. But there's other examples. Think about the children of Israel, all of the plagues that went down. If you read through the book of Exodus and you see, like, it's it's raining hail that's killing people everywhere except in little Goshen where all of the Israelites are. God has the ability to deliver his folks and still destroy those who are ungodly, unreverent, completely uh, not acknowledging that he even exists. So there's Noah as an example. There's Lot as an example. There's the children of Israel versus Egypt as an example. And I believe... And I think the Bible teaches that alongside all of those will one day be the best example of all, the rapture. That is before the great tribulation where God himself unleashes his wrath, he will take his own out. Awesome. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God is not asleep at the gavel. He still knows how to deliver the godly like Noah and even like questionable Lot. He knows how to deliver his own and he still knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment like the angels that are in chains, like the ancients that saw the cataclysm of the flood and like the ash heap of catastrophe that was once Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about this as we close. The only difference between the eight people on the ark and the rest of the perishing world was that they believed God enough to get on the boat. It's the only difference. Even less of a difference, I think, between Lot and the rest of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was definitely dangerously close to the the way that they were thinking, right? The only difference between him and them was that they, he believed God enough that God came and actually pulled him by his hands. He kind of didn't even want to go. 
See, God knows how to deliver the godly and to punish the unjust. Which group are you in? I pray that it is the former. Maybe tonight, one application is to pray for all of those folks that you know that are outside the ark.